From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Nicole Weber is an award-winning published literary nonfiction author who has returned from living in China, Hong Kong, India, and Peru, and is here to tell us about how to make a living as a nonfiction writer. So welcome to Craft, Nicole Reber. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, let's start off with how do you make unlimited amounts of money as a nonfiction writer? Easy question, right off the top. You write your own checks. Good. And we're done. That's, yes. that's a wrap. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me about how you got into writing and how you decided to go the path of nonfiction writing, which um, is, I think, a well-regarded, if often somewhat neglected field within writing, where so much of it is looking at fiction and novels and things like that. Indeed, it is. Um, I will address the first question. How did I get into it? I was born, I think, to do it. I remember being a toddler and have my mother uh, read me stories and I would just get so frustrated because I couldn't understand how she got me so excited and how she elicited so many emotions when it was just pictures and black marks on a page. And I would tear these books from her as if she were hiding something from me. So she did me a, an amazing um form of justice and she bought me all these uh kind of self-instructional devices so that I could learn to read and write on my own and one of the things that she bought me was a fat dictionary so I've always had a fat dictionary in the house I usually use them for pillows Okay, that's a, a comfortable way to sleep for a writer, I'm sure. Yeah, osmosis. What, yeah, what, what age were you when she was buying you the fat dictionary and the writing aids? How, when did this start? My first memories were around four years old. Okay. Because I know I was starting to write around that time. As I remember getting a dictionary and a thesaurus when I was uh, young. My, actually, my grandmother gave it to everybody, all of the extended family, and I was the only one that really thought it was a great thing. And everybody else was like, well, we can put the car up on blocks now. (laughs) Not to suggest the kind of family that I'm from. But uh, I I had the same sort of thing, uh, which I look back on now and think perhaps legal action was warranted um, receiving a gift like that that would put me on such a path. But everybody's different. So tell me how you started getting into the nonfiction um, where you began to say, this is what it's going to be a career. Did, were you, did, is this something you took up in school? In well, um, I'm incredibly pragmatic, so I'm quite sure that that informs my writing. Um, also, when I was an undergrad, I didn't really see the value of an English major back then. So I majored in communications. I figured out, well, I'll at least be able to write a whole lot. And then from there, I went into journalism, which at least taught me how to construct a sentence. Um, I was starting, I was just a couple of years into my career then as a journalist and then made my way over to marketing and PR when I started reading, I guess, the classics, the great canon of, you know, dead white male writers from America. And I picked now, up... Now, some of those are British, too, in the canon. You can't deny the Brits. I wasn't reading many Brits yet. Really? Yeah, really? it took me a couple of years to get to Graham Greene, and thank God I did. Okay. So I picked up a Truman Capote, and within the first paragraph, I said, oh, you can do that. 
And that's when I knew that I didn't want I didn't want to write the fiction that I really couldn't stand writing because I, I I'm not I I'm not a good liar. I suck at acting. And I can't put myself in some kind of fantasy world and make things operate. I'm not a puppeteer. I, I like discovering things and investigating things. Okay, so let's go back to that moment with Capote where you said, I can do that. That, that, is that. Am I getting that correctly? You read the first paragraph and said, by gum, uh, Truman Capote, I can match you. Is no, that, no, no. Is that Heavens what you mean? No. Or what, what was that the moment? Gracious, I don't know if I ever in my life will match what he did in that book. Um, okay. You can do that. It's possible. Okay. Because that's not... I don't come from a literary family. My parents are both bankers. Mm-hmm. So there was no art in my house. Uh, my grandmother read uh, voraciously, so I was fortunate yeah. about that. But she read, you know, mass books. Sidney Sheldon, Sel- Sheldon uh, Daniel Steele, that kind of thing. So the new canon is what we call it. <laughs> the, the new, new canon. canon. Yeah. So when you, uh, when you read Capote, what was it that struck you? A chord in which he said... You know, I think that that's doable. What what aspect of it was so different from other kinds of writing that, that that stuck with you and made you think that it was possible? I think what I liked was that that element of research and the fact that he had to place himself in those various spots where the Clutter family experienced what it experienced. Um, so by... I don't know what do you say, reliving it, he was able to fashion it into a story so that we readers could get a better understanding of what happened too. There wasn't this us versus them kind of feeling like you had in journalism. Um, it was it was uh, a m- much more universalized approach so that all of us could feel like we understood the situation better. Okay. When you look at your own writing uh, that you've done and some of the writing that you've done that you've won awards, do you think that that's something you've, you're giving your readers? Is that something you say, hey, this is from Capote. I can point to it and say, I did this piece or I had him in mind when I was writing it. That Did it stick with you that far? Yeah, I, I definitely would say that. Um, with the two pieces of mine that have won awards, I had larger population in mind. Um, one of the pieces that won an award was about wearing hijab in India, actually. It wasn't in the Middle East proper. It was in a very orthodox Muslim neighborhood in Mumbai, and uh, my initially ignoring my supervisor's suggestion to wear hijab, and then finding that it actually ended up liberating me. And so I had to juxtapose that with how we Westerners traditionally, you know, think of this when we have the image of, of a chador or a burqa in our head. We think that it's just the opposite of liberation. And so I was kind of playing with that. And then the next piece that won an award was um, was about a Chinese cult, the Falun Gong. 
when I had first moved to China, my American supervisor, who was married to a Chinese woman, told all of us expats who were new there about Falun Gong and scared the tarnation out of us, actually. So that every time, and he used this, um, this image of a white van, and he said, you know, the white vans will be going around to pick up people in the Falun Gong. So every time I saw a white van, which in China, with a population that big, is kind of like seeing a Starbucks here. Um, it was it was frightening. So my knees shook for for too long to ignore that. And then when I actually came back to the States, and one of the first experiences I had was of a Chinese woman thrusting herself at me with paraphernalia from Falun Gong, I was terrified. I thought, oh my gracious, how many years later and thousands of miles, how many countries have I lived in to come back to Falun Gong? So the whole cult thing was my question. And I kept running into people who stated that it was a cult. And I didn't necessarily agree with that. I didn't know Mm -hmm. if it was. So I wanted to answer that question. Did you feel that by the end of writing the piece, you had answered it? For me personally, yes. Um, I I don't think that it's necessarily up to the writer to tell you if it is or is not a cult without seeming pedantic mm-hmm. or overly political, and that that wasn't uh, that wasn't what I set out to do. It was okay. just to explore. So, just kind of like Capote did in in Cold Blood, he didn't really give you a guilty or a not guilty feeling about the characters. He he brought them to life. Okay. And so these are things that we're still debating today, is how should we feel about those characters, especially. Is that, you think, from your journalism background, uh, because that's the whole, you know, neutral observer, here are just sort of facts and nonfiction, things like that. Because um, if it were a more fictionalized account, I would expect more of a here's what I want you to to get from it, mm. maybe. Uh, I think it's appropriate that you say that. There's a piece I'm working on right now about Frank Lloyd Wright and an experience that I had in his bedroom when I saw him in his underwear. And um, at, the, at the time when I experienced that, I had had a, a vague notion. I consider myself from Chicago, so, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright to Chicago is like Ohio State University to Columbus. Mm-hmm. So um, because he was so ubiquitous, I never really took him seriously. But then when I went to visit and I wrote about architecture and design and urban planning for a decade. But in that whole time, you know, nobody talks about Frank. They want to talk about what's going on in Dubai or China or Singapore. Um, so... What I wanted was to create a character, a caricature of Frank so that the reader, through very fictional methods on my behalf, can come to a conclusion that's at least somewhat near, somewhat close to what I had when I saw him in the bedroom. You saw him actually live in, in the bedroom. <laughs> no. I was going to say, this is, these are some time shifts going on here because I... Yeah, oh, I well, that that's how difficult. good his architecture is. Right, yeah. He's he, a really he, good designer. He's, he's a really good designer. <laughs> what, what Frank Lloyd's architecture was really about was um, underwear. Yeah, it was transporting you 
into different uh, different times and spaces. Yeah. You also facilitate the Columbus chapter of the Nonfiction Authors Association. I do. Tell me about what that association does, uh, how people get involved in it, all all those sorts of things. How do they work with nonfiction writers? We have a monthly meeting. We meet at the Clintonville Women's Club the third Tuesday of every month. So it will be, I think, the 15th of this month. And we have a publisher or an editor or um, an author who will come speak to us and give us the realities of what it's like to publish a book. So they're going to talk about finances and how you are not going to become rich as the next Cheryl Strayed because chances are you're not going to be. But it's not just for... So it's an upbeat group. <laughs> so really it's a... It's a well-informed group. group. Okay. It's a very well-informed group. Um, but it's not just literary writers because I realize, as you had mentioned before, literary nonfiction is not exactly... Uh, Readable. <laughs> household name sorry <laughs> yeah it's not exactly household household terminology so uh i mean we have people writing about scientific things we have people writing advice books we have people writing about psychology we have so many different topics that people are writing about and i think one of the best things is that they mm, i love to watch the members at the end just thinking about all the information that they have learned, you can see the light bulbs, plenty of light bulbs go off over their heads because they're so thrilled with all the stuff that they've learned because it's realistic and because they're able to ask the questions of these professionals that I bring in. And also they can ask each other about writing things that they're going through, drafting things, publishing things, marketing as well. Marketing is one of the biggest things that we talk about. This month, we are featuring Nick Nicholas Drecker, who wrote a book called Breakfast with Nick, and who is huge around Columbus as the, the breakfast guy, Dr. Breakfast. And next month, we are having um, Eric Obanoff from $2 Radio, which is by far one of the best publishers in the entire country right now. Okay. It's makes, very young. What makes them one of the best publishers in the country? They are publishing work from international authors, from young, edgy authors, but also from more experienced authors. I think uh, one of their oldest authors just published her first book, and she's in her 80s or 90s. So, I mean, Eric and his wife, they are both co-founders. They have a wide range, but it's um, it's edgy, as I said, and the stuff is gripping. They have amazing connections at the New York Times. They get their books very well reviewed in so many of the uh, end of year best of kind of lists that are coming out right now. They have multiple books on those lists. And these are by, you know, publications, uh, literary networks that know their stuff so it's mm -hmm. very impressive what they're doing okay and i've met eric before and he's am he's amazing so what do you look for when you're um, looking for somebody to talk at something like this what kind of bona fides do they have nick obviously has breakfast with nick been writing a blog for a long time um the uh, person you just mentioned um 
has a lot of uh, pull at the New York Times. What else? What, other, what makes you decide who to bring in? Um, I like how Nick has diversified his marketing. Um, he's got a blog, which is beautiful, and he writes for several different Columbus publications. And he's been on a PBS doc. Um, but he's also got his culinary tours. And all of that is, is, um, shows that he's got very good marketing savvy. And I want him to, um, talk to our writers about that so that they don't think that publishing a book today just means you write the book, you put it in the publisher's hand and they do all the marketing because that isn't how it is. Now you have to be a small business like Nick is in order to be picked up by a, by a reputable publisher. Okay. So um, let's go back to some of the people that you, you talk about in the group. You had mentioned that at the end of it, their eyes light up. They say, oh, we have new ways of doing things. How often do they form, say, writing groups and work with each other and, and critique each other? Is that something that is done less frequently in nonfiction? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I just came to Columbus, what, six months ago it was. And there is one nonfiction group in about 20 that I have tried out or researched. One is strictly nonfiction. And it is a very well-established and closed group. So nobody can get into it. Right. Um, so what I ended up doing was forming an extension of the NFAA monthly group to have another monthly meeting with uh, just people who wanted to talk about their writing and share it and get it critiqued, just like any other other writer writers groups that are going on around town, like. Um, Columbus Creative Co-op, which is doing an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my friend Jordan has this group that she started after going to a Kenyan review conference this summer. And it's it's a really fantastic group, too. And it's made up of half sci-fi writers and half nonfiction writers. So um, you never know where you're going to find a group. When you're in a writing group or with the people in the nonfiction uh, writing group, what kind of feedback are you personally looking for? What do you find yourself saying mostly, hey, I want you to look at X in this, as opposed to just giving them something with no notion and then not knowing the kind of feedback that you get that might not be the feedback that you find most helpful? Oh, that's a very good question. I think one of the best things that you can do in a writer's group is to ask specific questions. Um, Do you feel like you can relate to the narrator slash character. Uh, how is the plot progression? How <laughs> am I staying consistent with my tenses? Because I see, especially in my work, that that tends to be uh, problematic. Um, something that I have discovered from going to all these writers groups uh around Columbus and for which I am so thankful is that I tend not to divulge enough of myself and considering I'm writing first person accounts and nonfiction. I think that's pretty imperative. Well, what, what is it that you feel you're not putting on the page? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying um, the first piece that I wrote for uh, a class in, in grad school 
a, uh, a another grad student looked at it, and it was supposed to be a um, a literacy narrative. And she said, "I don't see enough blood on the page." Oh. And I thought, "Well, I'm not your bleeding guy, you know. I'm not the." <laughs> Uh, so I think that um, I tell that story because I think that I might get the same sort of thing. There's not enough you because there's always that. Um, there's a certain, say in, in journalism, a certain erasure of self that obviously is not um, as taken up by um, other, some different part like um, Hunter Thompson. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Good example. He says as she twitches. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but you know, what is it that, that you feel when you're getting that sort of feedback? Where is it you say, okay, this isn't what I provided or that I feel that I should be giving more information about? Well, to be quite honest, I think that a lot of times those critics are right. Generally, what I tend to do after I um, receive a piece back from these writing, writing groups is I let it sit for a while in the proverbial drawer and then I come back and I don't even know who that person is. Um, Truman wasn't there and in cold blood. So perhaps that's one of the ways that he did affect me. In addition, of course, as you mentioned, to my journalism experience. But also, I think, uh, you know, something that I'm noticing right now really intensely is that I'm not digging these first-person narrative accounts that are self-indulgent. If I don't feel you as a reader, I'm not going to make it through your 5,000-word piece. So I think I'm I'm at a point where I'm struggling betwixt too much and not enough of me. Um. And this, this current essay I'm writing about Frank Lloyd Wright's underwear, for example, is, um, is one place where I'm, I'm willing to put a little bit more blood, as you put it, on the page. Okay. That's interesting. I, um, because it, I think it taps into, and I don't know if this is technically still going on, um, but the memoir craze, uh, and, and I remember reading Running with Scissors, and just intensely not enjoying it. <laughs> I did not care for the book. I didn't care for the, the, the writer. And then reading Angela's Ashes and um, thinking, well, this I really like. Mm. And that probably says terrible things about me as a, a person. But um, I, I felt that one was self-indulgent and one was really good writing. And <laughs> I'll get, here's, here's the hate mail. Um, <laughs> But but and 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 that was sort of the difference for me. And uh, you know, I'm not again. I'm not the writer that puts a lot of blood on the page, but I'm the writer that says I wanted something that's well crafted. I want something that I can look at and and say I understand the person. But there's a certain boundary that I you know don't necessarily have that much interest in crossing and learning about every piece of petulance that you might have upon some time done. Right, right. Uh, remind me who wrote Running? I think it was Augustine Burroughs. Okay. It was made into a terrible movie, too. So it's not just me. (laughs) A terrible movie as well. Um, You know, something that I think is going on in memoir in particular is... There was a piece in the Boston Review recently about this as well, in particular about travel memoirs, is that publishers... I'm talking about book publishers more specifically than publishers and editors at lit mags. Um, 
it's almost like character forming that that is done in Hollywood. For example, Reese Witherspoon is going to end up doing, you know, six romantic comedies when she starts out as a as an actress so that we can decide how to make her into a star, mm-hmm. what kind of star she's going to be. Um, I think that a lot of publishers are doing that to women. It's expected that women are going to emote all over the page and that we are going to want to talk about boyfriends and babies. And personally, I don't care about talking about either because I don't think it's your business. I would rather talk about something that's far less personal and make it a a sort of universal dialogue. Like right now, um, in addition to this Frank piece, I'm working on (laughs) what's ended up to be two travel memoirs from my time abroad. And when I first started to write them, I couldn't stand them because I felt that they were too self-indulgent. I didn't know where to um, stop putting the blood on the page. And that's another reason I think I fell way back to the other side of not giving enough. Mm -hmm. And so now, um, one of the reasons I'm really enjoying writing my short pieces, such as this Frank one, and uh, one that I wrote and had published in Fanzine uh, recently called I Dare You, which is an essay about the Frida Kahlo exhibit in Detroit that uh, transpired last spring, was that I'm, I'm... able to convey, I'm starting to be able to convey personal experiences, but have turned them into more universal tales. And that's Mm -hmm. what I want to eventually become more comfortable with once I start getting back to those travel memoirs so that I can take you on these journeys. But you don't need to know about the boyfriends I had or the babies I didn't want. So. Okay. Um, which brings us us to the um a a now i'm so when you're writing something like that and you're writing your travel memoir and you're writing about where you've been and and what you've done what are the things that as you you sit down to write you say here's what i really want to get across is it um a chronological thing is it a geographical thing is it um trends you're seeing um, at different places that you go. And because I'm interested in where you start with that, because that says to me a lot about who you're, what you're going to hit along the road. Do you know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. you, I've seen travel writing done in a lot of different ways. You can, you can do it thematically. You can do it, you know, most often it's done by, I started here and da, 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 then you, you go along, but that's not always the case. So what is it that sticks out for you when you first sit down to write a travel log? When I write a short piece or now that I'm working on both of these books? Well, let's start with a short piece and then go to long piece. Um, when, when it, you know, when it comes to the short pieces, I'm going to ask myself, what was it about that moment that keeps it etched in my mind? Like, I mean, why is it suddenly when we were in Frank's bedroom that I could imagine him so clearly, almost like a hologram, in uh, his desk? What was it? I mean, there was no dummy. It wasn't made into some kind of wax museum. There's nothing phony or ersatz about this, this Taliesin West. Um, 
what was it that made him real to me? Because it was a travel experience. When I went to uh, Taliesin West, it was actually uh, at a time when I was betwixt countries. I was between times in Peru or between India and Peru. I can't remember at the moment. So I was in the mode of travel. And so I approached Taliesin West as a travel thing. And because I was in kind of a touristy uh situation at the moment and I was surrounded by other people who were from around the country so what is it that they came to this what is it that draw that drew them to this piece of architecture in the middle of the desert I mean if you are interested in architecture why not go to Chicago why not go to Columbus Indiana why not go to um, San Francisco or New York why come here to the desert Okay. And for your longer pieces, when you sit down and say this, so that's more like a vignette. That's a moment. Yeah. That's, um, but you can't do that for the longer piece. You've got to say, um, unless it's a series of, of small stories um, right. writ large across some connecting theme. But what is that for you as you sit down? Are you, is it like, here's that? Because that was probably what it would be for me, a series of vignettes. I'll take Peru. Um when I first started writing about my experience abroad, I thought it would be four sections, and that would be mainland China and then Hong Kong, shift over to India, and then write about Peru. And by the time I started, uh, by the time I was about three quarters of the way finished with mainland China, Hong Kong, and India, I realized I couldn't progress to, in, to Peru because I didn't know what I wanted to say. I didn't know what it was that, that has left this strange taste in my mouth. Whereas I knew very well and very emphatically what I wanted to say about mainland China, Hong Kong, and, and India. Uh, so when I finally figured out what it was, what is this takeaway that I have of Peru... I started outlining in Peru and and it ended up being a book unto itself. And what I found were the universal truths there, the things that people could relate to wasn't Machu Picchu because I never even went. I don't tend to do um, the thing that everybody else does. I, I expect they'll tell me about it themselves. What I found the most fascinating was race relations. And the residual of colonialism. And I taught there, I taught English at a university there for one year, in addition to um, being an architecture and design writer. And so the class struggle and the religion and colonialism and everything that's left over and the thoughts and, and social protocols and cultural practices that remain because of that. Um, these were very important to me. In addition, of course, to the fact that there was just a tremendous, beautiful lot of architecture and art for me to explore. It was so vastly different from living on the other side of the country that that my entire experience there was looking at different things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you said, um, why is it leaving such a strange taste? Because it seems like you are dealing with some amb- ambiguity in your feeling toward it, right? There's mm-hmm. a, this, a, you're, you're citing the architecture, the art, and all that, but at the same time, race relations seem fraught, 
for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, is that a common thing for you? You go into a certain place and you say, I really like it, but I like it in this deeply ambiguous way. Uh, do you know what I'm, I'm getting at there? Because, Or is this a, a singularity with Peru? I Actually, I have found that ambiguity, as you say, to be um, a sort of common part of my life. I mean, I think that's another reason I write non- nonfiction, is to try to figure this stuff out. Okay. When you're done figuring it out, what what sort of takeaway do you have? I mean, you're because a lot of people say I write to discover. Yeah. And then at the end, you've written, you've discovered it. What does that do for you as a person? <laughs> Usually, by the time I'm finished with a piece, I'm so I'm so exhausted from beating myself up in this process of cognitive dissonance that I I'm I'm ready to let it go. Okay. I realize which basic side of the fence I'll take. And then I'll just go on from that and I let it go. So writing is done when exhaustion sets in. Yeah, when I know that the fight is, there's no answer. There's never an answer. There's never a right or a wrong. There's just more weight is on this side for me than on the other one. Okay. I, you know, I, I, I respect the answer. At the, and my ambiguity is at the same time, I'm always wondering, like, because uh, I, I write, uh, I don't always do, I don't, I infrequently publish but i'm always like what is the drive here what is it that says oh this would be a really interesting thing to write about um especially for people like me that just don't i don't do a whole lot of publishing um and so i can't really answer that question but i was hoping you would be able to provide a complete psychological evaluation of me that would allow me to know why i do these things called writing i want to ask first why you don't publish um, probably because I get things about 90% done <laughs> and then move on to the next thing. Okay. That's accomplished for me what I wanted. Um, or, uh, or I have a deadline of some other variety that, um, I mean, I've published in academic journals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I used to work for university of Chicago easy on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not – I don't know that a lot of people publish in academic journals even as infrequently as I do uh, have uh, for sort of sp- the kinds of, I think, almost spiritual reasons that you're you're talking about. Um, you do it for uh, career reasons. Right? You do it um, – I don't – maybe there's somebody who's published in a something that they really felt uh, moved them as a person in a academic journal. I don't believe that I've ever read that. <laughs> but it does exist. It really does. I, There's I a nonfiction journal called Broad Street. And earlier this year, in one of their issues, I think it was their second or third issue, actually, they published this beautiful essay by a writer named Glenn Shepard. I think it's Glenn H. Shepard. He is um, a PhD. And he is an anthropologist practicing in Brazil. And he was writing this essay about which he could easily have turned into an academic piece and had published, which he's done numerous times. But he is so moved by what he does for a living and by the people with whom he surrounds himself that he wanted to give the experience to someone else. And I'm so thankful for that because now I'm friends with him and I really cherish his writing. So I'm always looking for more of it. Um, I think that's... That's the thing about publishing literary work is that it is a dialogue. 
when I want to know more about um, anthropology, for instance, I'll go to him. When I want to know more about psychology, but not in a scientific way, I will always go to Lawrence Slater. When I want to understand more about the process of recovery, you would go to Mary Carr. So I think that that's one thing that I am trying to do is to open up um, the dialogue about art, architecture, and travel. And those sure. are the th- things that I write about. Okay. Not to um, move back from my earlier position, but I'll say that the most, the n- most numerous articles that I've read were in um, science journals. Um, and, and that may color my feeling toward literary journals, although certainly I've read many and written in the humanities. Um, science was where I cut my teeth. Uh, years, years, years ago, uh, about two years ago. But anyway, um, Nicole Weaver, I want to thank you very much for talking to me today. I appreciate learning about the nonfiction writing scene in Central Ohio. And what is the website for your group that you had mentioned earlier? The the nonfiction group. Uh, you can find us on Meetup at NFAA. NFAA. Yes, Nonfiction Authors Association here in Columbus. Well, Nicole Weber, thank you very much. Thank you. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. Be creative.